Uh, Did you bring a Bible this morning? If you brought your Bible, open up to John chapter 20. We're going to read verses 11 through 18. This is describing the scene of Jesus' tomb on Easter morning. Now Mary... Magdalene, she stood outside the tomb crying. See, Peter and John, the disciples, ran up. They actually looked inside the tomb. Mary is waiting outside of the tomb as they do this. And as she wept, John and Peter backed out. She was able to look inside the tomb. Verse 12, and she saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been one at the head and the other at the foot. And they asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. And he asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. She said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. Uh, Question for you this morning. Do you believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? That's the Easter claim that the tomb was empty. And it wasn't empty because the body had been taken, but rather because Jesus rose from the dead. Do you believe that? Second question. If you do believe that, does that make a difference, a real difference in your life? Uh, We're going to look at the resurrection this morning and think about those two questions. Can you believe it? And if you do believe it, what does it mean for you? So I'm going to give you three statements all about Jesus' resurrection this morning. And you may be here thinking, I, you know, I, I don't know if I believe this to be true. It sounds, it sounds good. I hope it's true. But you may be thinking, but it's, it's been so long since it supposedly happened, like 2,000 years. That's a long time. And the world seems to be kind of a, a mess today. And if you're a bit skeptical... Well, then you can get in line this morning. And I mean, you can get in line behind um, Mary Magdalene, skeptical that morning, uh, behind Jesus' disciples who were skeptical as well, who had a really hard time believing. Um, so I'm going to hopefully give you some convincing evidence for Jesus' resurrection. And here's my first point. Jesus' resurrection is rooted 
in historic reality. Um, you know, one of the one of the things that has been said of the gospel accounts of Jesus' resurrection, that's ah, it's just kind of a made-up story. It's just a made-up story to help people cope with life and go through difficult things. Um, but I want to think about one very important detail in, uh, well, it appears in several of the gospels that um, Mary's there, Mary Magdalene, but other women, even other gospel writers say, are there. Women were the first eyewitnesses. And in Mary's, Mary Magdalene's instance, uh, not only she's a woman, she, you might remember what um, Mark and Luke say about Mary, that she uh, had been possessed by seven demons. So not only is Mary a woman, but she's a woman uh, who was um, very demon-possessed at a time in life. And if you are fabricating a story, if you're trying to pass it off as believable and real in ancient times, you, you never would have a formerly demon-possessed woman as uh, your star eyewitness. Um, women during those ancient times were not considered to be credible uh, witnesses. They weren't able to testify in Jewish court, for example, because they were considered unreliable. One of the early um, philosophers that taught against Christianity um, was a man by the name of Celsus, and he actually used the fact that it was women eyewitnesses as one of his main arguments about the unreliability of, of Christianity and its story. Uh, Celsus would say that how, how can you believe this historic, this hysterical, not historical, this this hysterical uh, demon possessed woman? Well, the, the gospel writers knew all this. They they knew about how society in that time viewed women as eyewitnesses, and yet they record these important details. And the only reason they would include women and Mary as eyewitnesses was if they actually were eyewitnesses. And okay, you may think John lists her as an eyewitness, but is she a credible? Is she a credible witness? Obviously, you might think Mary would be biased towards a resurrection. She would be just chomping in the bit to proclaim that Jesus was resurrected. And as you recall the story that we read, actually there's, there's no indication that Mary was likely to believe in the resurrection. Isn't that a fascinating story that we read? there's no evidence that Mary was inclined to believe that Jesus had risen from the dead. In fact, it's clear that Mary strongly thought Jesus was dead and that he would stay dead. She looks inside the tomb. There's two angels in the tomb. And they ask her, why are you crying? In other words, Mary, think about the assumptions that you're bringing this morning. She assumed that there was no coming back for Jesus. And when that is your assumption, that, that Jesus is not coming back, when you're presented with an empty tomb, what would you conclude? Well, you might conclude what Mary concluded, and that is that someone took the body away. Maybe these angels took the body. Maybe the gardener, we know who that is, took the body. So Mary 
think someone took the body away. She says in verse 13, They have taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they have put it. She says that twice in the story that we read. They've taken the body away. Someone's done it. Third time in the chapter, earlier at the very beginning of chapter 20, she says it a third time. Someone has taken this body away. Her strong conclusion is not, Jesus is alive. Her strong conclusion is someone has grabbed his dead body and they've taken it away. And not even the presence of two angels in the tomb uh, was startling enough to Mary to, to, to think her, to, to get her to think, well, maybe something is happening here. How do we know that there are angels in the tomb? Well, we know that because John gives us that detail, right? Well, how did John know that there were angels in the tomb? Well, John and Peter, they were there at the tomb earlier. They, they could have seen the angels, and John could have written it down, but you would think that they would have said, hey, Mary, there's two angels in here, by the way. They make no mention. John makes no mention of angels in the tomb until Mary sticks her head in the tomb and sees them. How does John know that there's angels in the tomb? Because Mary knew that it was angels in the tomb. said, hey, there's a couple of angels in there. You would think that the presence of angels in the tomb would have given her some reason to think, well, maybe something is up here this morning, something special. No, not for Mary. Well, maybe seeing Jesus himself would convince Mary. So she turns behind her, sees Jesus, but concludes, well, this, this fellow just, just must be the gardener this morning. And he asks her the same question, why are you crying, Mary? And then he adds, who is it you're looking for? Just a little prompt to see if she'll notice, indeed, who she is talking to. And then verse 16, if you have your Bible open, look, verse 16 says that she turns back around to Jesus. In other words, she's hardly paying any attention to him. She's, it's not a question in her mind whether or not this could be anyone other than just a routine gardener. So she has to turn back around to listen to his questions, verse 16 states, because she's hardly paying attention to him. Her assumption is that Jesus is dead and he's staying that way. That's her conclusion. There must be a natural explanation to this empty tomb. Now you may be coming here this morning a little skeptical. You may have skeptical assumptions about Christianity, and your assumption could be that there is no way that the resurrection of Jesus is true. That may be you this morning. You may think, yeah, I kind of hope it to be true, but I don't know. It sounds like it could be just a story, a myth that people have scripted for themselves in an attempt to give meaning to life and hope that really might not be there. And that myth has just been passed down from generation to generation. You may think Mary, her disciples, oh, they just wanted him to be alive. And they made it all up. The problem with that idea is that none of the disciples had it, in, had it on their radar, had it in their mind that Jesus may actually be alive. None of the disciples were believing that. Mary is so far away from believing in a resurrection that presented with an empty tomb with angels inside and Jesus standing outside of the tomb, she never thinks, maybe all the stuff that Jesus said about rising on the third day, maybe it could be true. 
Mary and the women, they go and they report to the other disciples afterwards. Now the tomb is empty. And they did not think, could Jesus be risen just like they said? No. Look at what uh, the Gospel of Luke writes about this. Luke chapter 24, verse 11. They did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. The disciples were not inclined to believe that Jesus was resurrected. And yet when Jesus appears to them and they see all the disciples, all the disciples were willing to die for their belief. In fact, all but one historically did die for the claim that Jesus rose from the dead. The deaths of the disciples are recorded historically by non-Christian historians. The disciples believed Jesus rose from the dead. In fact, if the disciples had taken the body, like some suggest, why in the world would they have been willing to sacrifice their lives for a claim that they knew was false? So Jesus' resurrection was not some story that the disciples made up or that Christians came up with centuries after the fact just to have something hopeful to believe in. The resurrection is rooted in history. Now, you you may not dispute the evidence of Jesus' resurrection. And maybe your thought is, okay, I I guess I believe, but what what does this man's resurrection mean for me? 2,000 years after the fact. So my second point, Jesus' resurrection, it matters to you. Seems kind of like a plain point. It matters to you. Well, let's talk about why it matters to you. Jesus tells Mary in the story, "Don't remember this. Uh, don't cling to me. Don't hold on to me." And it wasn't because he didn't want her to to touch him. Likely, she fell to her knees and was holding on to his his ankles and just not letting go, clasping on to Jesus. That's how. Matthew describes the scene. And then Jesus says what he really means. John chapter 20, verse 17. He tells Mary, I have not yet ascended to my father. Let's get that that scripture on on the screen. John 20, 17. So I want you to notice something. He says it twice. I have not yet ascended to the father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my father and to your father to my God, and to your God. So Jesus reveals that he isn't just a man. (laughs) He has a real physical body that Mary clings to. She can touch him. But it's it's not like any other physical body that you and I have come in contact with because it can ascend, can rise in the air. He says it twice. I have not yet ascended. I am going to ascend. It's a new kind of physical body. It can, it can process food, as Jesus demonstrated a little bit later as he ate with his disciples, ate a, a piece of fish. It can carry out real conversations, this physical body of his, create real sound with real vocal cords, hear with real ears. It can be touched, it can be held. And yet this resurrection, re- resurrected body of Jesus is no longer limited by disease, by aging, by weakening. 
and that body can ascend. Jesus' resurrection matters to you because, my friends, that is the type of resurrection body that we are promised one day. It's through Jesus' resurrection that we receive it. How? How how does this promise get delivered to us? Well, Jesus tells Mary, go tell my brothers. And it's the first time that he refers to his disciples as his brothers. How are they his brothers now? It's through Jesus' death on the cross and resurrection. It's through that, it's through Jesus' death and resurrection that those who follow Jesus, we are adopted into God's family. We become God's children. That's the promise of Jesus' resurrection. And in Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul writes this strange thing about the resurrection, the resurrected bodies. Paul writes that, that even all creation is longing for this to happen, for us to receive resurrection bodies. Romans chapter 8, verse 19 says, For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed, meaning for God's children to receive their resurrected bodies because all of creation will share in this resurrection one day. And this is why the resurrection matters for you. By faith in Christ, you become God's child. God adopts you into His family. It's through faith in Christ and not some other way that you receive this promise of one day receiving this resurrected physical body that is capable of everything in life that we love. What do we love in life? We love relationships. We love friendships. We love hugging. We love laughing. We love playing games. We love making music and hearing music. We love eating. We love having a a great party. And we we will be able to have that because of Jesus' resurrection one day without the slow or sometimes fast process of death and decay. So when Jesus was resurrected, it didn't mean that He just saved your soul. It means that He saved everything that matters the most to you. Most to you about life. Having love that lasts. And He ascends to be, why does He ascend? To be Lord over heavens and earth. See, in ascending, Jesus reveals, I'm so much more than your companion. And maybe at that moment when, when Mary was clinging on to Jesus, she just, she just went, oh, stay here. I want, I, because you're my companion. Jesus says, oh, I am so much more than that, Mary. I'm ascending to be the reigning Lord over heavens and earth, over the universe, over your life. Colossians, Paul's letter to Colossians, he puts it like this. He says that all things have been created through him, through Christ, and for Christ. And in in Christ, all things hold together because he is reigning over all things as the ascended Lord. 
your life exists for Christ's glory. And Christ governs all things, including your life, to accomplish his glorious purposes. And this leads us to our last point this morning. Because of the resurrection, you have a personal call to a mission of hope. You have a personal call. Let's start with that. See, the truth is, no one with a closed heart fails to become a Christian because, oh, there was just one little, if there was just one more bit of evidence to be known, I, I, would, have, I would have believed. It's never like that. We're not just missing that one little last bit of proof that pushes someone to, to believe. Just as there was no evidence that convinced Mary that Jesus, was, that Jesus was alive. Apart from one word that Jesus spoke to her. You remember that in the story? What did he, what did he say to her? What was that word that allowed her to recognize him? Mary. Yeah. He said her name. His personal call. It's when Jesus calls you by name that your eyes and your heart are opened. And this morning, you may not hear an audible voice calling your name, but you may hear an inner voice. An inner voice in you that is longing for hope. An inner urging telling you that there is nothing in this world that can fill that urging. Let me tell you, that urging in you points to, to the one who can fill it. So maybe the, that inner unrest is just an unrest with life. You know, C.S. Lewis said that that unrest can begin when you realize that this world, the way that it is now with disease and death, this world as it is now can never be a suitable home for people that God has created to long for eternity. So you maybe have this, there's just this inner unrest with the world as it is now. And you're longing for the one that can fulfill that, that hope, that desire. Or maybe you're just a little bored in life right now. And Jesus gives you a personal call to what? To a mission of hope. See, Jesus tells Mary, don't cling to me. We can't just stay here, Mary. Because it's time for you to get moving. And I've got a mission of hope for you. Go tell my brothers. Go tell my brothers that you've seen me. You need to share this hope, Mary. See, the world too often hears a storyline that this message of hope is just a lie. And that the world is essentially just this, this random collection of accidents. A random result of accidents. And the suffering that we see is simply what happens in such a world. That's the false storyline that people hear so much today. And they hear that being afraid is the appropriate reaction in such circumstances. So what is this mission of hope that Jesus calls you to? It is to proclaim a different storyline to the world. That Jesus lives, that Jesus reigns, and that he holds all things together. And then you can tell that person in crisis, and that means he holds your life together as well.
Let me ask you, who did, who did Mary mistake Jesus for? Let's go over that detail again. The gardener. Let me tell you, that's not an accidental detail in John's gospel. John's gospel is loaded with these remarkable images for Christ. It's not accidental that Mary mistook Jesus for a gardener. You see, Jesus takes the mess of this world, and he brings growth, he brings beauty, Jesus uses all things in our life to grow us. Just like a gardener in his garden. Uses the right amount of water and sunlight. And that means the right amount. Because there are times when there are there is no water and there is no sunlight. There are stressful times for us. And listen, a word about pruning. Gardeners prune. Listen, uh, pruning is a metaphor. But it's a metaphor for painful loss in life. And whenever you, whenever you go through, through, through something bad or ugly, when you, when you lose something, uh, something very good that Jesus prunes off, that is difficult. And sometimes very painful. So some of you know the, the 19th century preacher Charles Spurgeon. Um, here's what he wrote about this story of Mary mistaking Jesus for the gardener. He says, Jesus being the gardener means our deliverance from many gloomy fears. And he writes, listen, you walk into a garden where, where the path is just littered with leaves and branches are broken and scattered here or there. There's stones all over the pathway. All the flower beds look like a herd of wild hogs just stormed through. He didn't put in those words, but that's what he meant. And, and you've been there. You've been there in life when things just seem turned upside down and it's like a disaster area. Is all that accidental? That's the false storyline the world believes. Did a wild animal just come and muck things up? No. The gardener had been doing it for the good of the garden. If the Lord has done it, and he has, Spurgeon writes, our gloomy fears are idle. You don't need to have those gloomy fears. See, there is suffering in life, but with purpose, so that we can grow to be people who can comfort others in their suffering, who can proclaim this this true storyline of Jesus' resurrection. One more old guy, uh, even older than Spurgeon, George Herbert. He was a famed uh, English poet. He lived um, late 1600s, early 1700s, so... Beginning of the 18th century. Uh, he served in British Parliament. He was a pastor. And he, he wrote this great poem. I call it great because it's short and I can understand it. <laughs> he titled it Paradise. And I've, it's been, just been turning over in my head. Um, so I'm going to risk reading a little of this poem to you. Um, it begins... I bless thee, Lord, because I grow among thy trees, which in a row to thee both fruit and order owe. And I want to suggest that when you have submitted your life to Jesus the gardener, your life becomes much more orderly than you might realize. 
You're like this little orderly row of trees in Jesus' garden. And you might think, order, it doesn't seem like there's much order in my life. Just chaos. I'm just putting out one fire after another. Listen. Listen, your life is in Jesus' garden, and he's carefully pruning it. He doesn't miss a branch that needs trimming, nor does he clip a branch that needs to remain. And that's true of you. And he continues, what open force or hidden charm can blast my fruit or can destroy the fruit that's growing in me, can blast my fruit or bring me harm? while the enclosure of this garden is thine arm. Do you know this morning that Jesus' arm holds you? He's the barrier of the garden. He's not some flimsy, flimsy fence that's meant to keep critters out. No, it's the strong arm of Jesus that is guarding you, protecting you from anything that threatens His perfecting work being done in your life. Now, George Herbert had a mother whose name was Magdalene. Which I think is absolutely cool. It has nothing to do with why I brought George Herbert up, but I just think that's pretty cool. His mom, Magdalene. But what is very relevant is that George Herbert didn't make it past his 40th birthday. He died when he was 39. He was sick most of his adult life. He's writing this, I'm in a garden, I'm God's garden. And here's a sick man writing this. He died of consumption. So that's, that's dying of tuberculosis. They call it consumption by the, the weight loss that you experience just eating your body away. Yet one of the ways that he viewed God was as a gardener and God prunes away even what might be healthy so that what remains is a life that is shaped by God himself. And so that you are able to, to then do this, this work that go about this mission of hope that God, that Jesus gives you to bring him glory. And the poem finishes. Such sharpness, that pair of scissors, shows the sweetest friend. Such cuttings rather heal than rend. And such beginnings touch their end. So I want you to know that Jesus has an end for you. And it's a glorious end. It ends with a resurrected body, just like His. And in the meanwhile, He gives you a mission of hope. The good news of Easter is that Christ is not dead, but He is alive and He is Lord over your life. And you live in His garden. And with His arm, He protects you. That's the true story of our lives. And whatever you face, whatever disappointments you've experienced, you can believe and you can know that any pruning and cutting that happens only happens through the skilled hands of Jesus the gardener. Jesus knows how to bring abundant life, greater life, and He's going to bring abundant fruit to your life. That is the story of Easter, that we get to tell. That's your mission. Let's pray. Glorious God, 
Thank You that You reign over us. Thank You that there is not a moment where we do not have hope. The the firm and certain knowledge of Your work in our life. Help us to persevere. When we are going through, when we're experiencing that that pruning in our life of Christ our gardener, help us to, to endure with hope and even joy, knowing that Christ is bringing about something beautiful in our life. He's going to take our circumstances, our difficult circumstances, this limited world that we live in today, and He's bringing about His resurrection work. Lord, help us. This week, even as we get ready to finish up this storyline, as we read Revelation, the end of the story, help us to, to know what You're doing in our life and to listen deeply. to watch closely to your movement and your leadership, and then to boldly go and proclaim this story of hope. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.